to the Customer Experience Management Podcast, hosted by Anders Gustafsson and Carlos Velasco. In this episode, Carlos interviews Professor Gemma Calvert about the past, present, and future of neuromarketing. Uh, welcome everyone to the, the Customer Experience Management Podcast. This is uh, Season 3. Anders and I would like to, to welcome you back to uh, our podcasts. Uh, today, we're starting with a very special guest, a uh, person that I've known for several years and who I have admired her work quite a lot. Her name is uh, Gemma Calvert. She's a professor at Nanjian Technological University. She has uh, been doing a, a lot of research in consumer neuroscience, in basic neuroscience, and she has been doing also uh, lots of consulting projects in, in the context of consumer neuroscience, using neuroscience techniques uh, for businesses uh, and different purposes. Um, it is very nice to have her here because she has been working in this topic for several years, you know, more than some people can actually think of. <clears throat> I, I like to think that there is a sort of a resurgence of interest, if you like, in consumer neuroscience, neuromarketing. But this is a topic that uh, Gemma has been working on for like several, several years. Uh, she's actually one of the first persons that connected, you know, uh, uh, neuroscientific techniques businesses. So I just want to to, to uh, welcome her to this podcast. It's very, very uh, nice to have, you, to have you here, Gemma. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, I would like to, to give you the, the word to introduce a little bit more about yourself. Okay. Well, thank you, Carlos. And thank you very much for inviting me along to this podcast. You have made me sound very, very old. Well, perhaps I am. <laughs> um, so yeah, I got into the field in the late 1990s. Um, partly because I had been working in the marketing uh, industry as an account executive and account manager for several years before coming back into academe and uh, doing my degree in psychology at the LSE. And then uh, I did a PhD in clinical medicine in, at Oxford. And shortly thereafter, um, I woke up one Christmas morning and I'd had this dream like, um, because we just started using functional MRI, this technology which allowed us to see inside the human brain and, and how uh, the brain creates experiences for us. And I guess I had, in my dream, I'd kind of merged my two careers and I suddenly woke up and I thought, whoa, this would have been such a good technology to have when I was in my past career in marketing because we'd been able to better understand consumers because focus groups and surveys were so poorly predictive of what people were going to actually do at the point of sale. And uh, on that note, I set up a company called Neurosense um, in 1999 with two of my academic colleagues. And we were shortly approached by Unilever um, and they were super interested in how they could um, use these neuromarketing or at that point neuroscience techniques to better understand consumer behavior and to be able to predict this. And so we set up with a four-year retainer um, with them, and we spent the next four years really having some fantastic um, times experimenting with EEG, fMRI, with reaction time testings, eye tracking, and really beginning to understand how all of the different techniques could address different types of marketing challenges. So I kind of feel like part of this, you know, th this whole industry got started from my subconscious in my dreams. 
that is quite uh, an interesting story. And, and but but you know, it's it's sort of like uh, there's this philosopher uh, Soren Kierkegaard uh, from Denmark that he says that it's difficult to understand life what life forward, but it's easier to understand that looking backward. You know, kind of like connecting the dots, and and, and somehow it, it makes sense. You know that you bring together like your previous career to the context of your new one, which is one of the reasons why I appreciate a lot multidisciplinarity, right? Because you can transfer a lot of techniques, you know, ways of thinking and stuff to, to, to solve problems. But okay, that's a very interesting story. Let's start from the very, very beginning. What is neuromarketing and what is consumer neuroscience? I guess these are two sort of concepts that people talk about. Some people say neuromarketing, some people say neuroscience applied to marketing, some people say consumer neuroscience. Is there any difference between these concepts? What are they? I, don't, I think that rather mm -hmm. depends on who you are. For me, I think they're synonymous. Um, if there's a differentiating factor, it's perhaps because consumer neuroscience is more often used by academics to describe more highbrow research. Neuromarketing is more the commercial uh, side of this and more applied. Um, I suppose if you're looking for a kind of difference, um, perhaps I would say that consumer neuroscience is more broadly concerned with understanding how human beings behave um, in different contexts. So for example, a kind of question would be, um, you know, how do, what's going on in the human brain when, when people are sat at a casino and maybe um, have gambling addictions, you know, and, um, you know, they're consuming, obviously. So there is an element of consumer neuroscience in there. And of course, there's a neuroscientific, more kind of medically applied interest in how do we use this information to help people overcome addictions. Is that something that a neuromarketer would be asked to address? I think much uh, less likely. So neuromarketing is really more about helping brands to better understand how their products, their packaging, their marketing messages and so forth are um, engaging consumers, are um, maybe improving consumers' experience and lifestyles. Okay, that, that makes sense. And I guess, you know, what would you say are some of the reasons that this approach becomes relevant and interesting? I just started mentioning one of the reasons is that, you know, perhaps focus groups and surveys sometimes are not necessarily predictive of human behavior. What is what this concept of neuroscience brings to the market, to marketing discipline you know, or marketing practitioners that, that is kind of like adding value to it? Well, I think probably one of the most important contributions that neuroscience has had to marketing is giving us a touch of reality about who we really are. There's a very nice book by Steve Genko called Intuitive um, Marketing. And it's about understanding can, us as people. You know, one of the things that he says is, you know, it's we're more defined by what we don't do. We don't like advertising a lot. We, we find the, all those marketing messages and communications intrusive and irritating, disruptive, you know, grabbing our attention, pushy. And, you know, we don't go around shops deciding at every shelf uh, how we emotionally feel about a brand. So this means, you know, we're not introspective. We're late. We have, you know, our brains are lazy. We uh, confabulate. We tell market researchers what we think they want to hear. Often we don't know why we buy. We're pretty good at telling people what we like and what we don't like. But why? Well, maybe there are some reasons in there, but it's difficult to introspect because maybe those reasons are so lost in time uh, that we can't get them out, at least not explicitly. But that is the role of the neuromarketer. 
those reasons are still inside your brain and it's a neuromarketer's job to get them out so that brand owners can understand what is it about their brands that make them you know successful or otherwise that makes absolute sense i guess one of the one of the challenges of using uh, uh, neuroscience techniques is or that sometimes people uh, mention is that is expensive you know it's like using fmri could be like very expensive or using eg i guess the technology is becoming cheaper and perhaps more mobile and and faster i guess but but some people complain still it's it's quite expensive so what what is an alternative way of or, or how can you use neuromarketing uh, in a way that is not expensive i guess well i think all <clears throat> not all techniques are mm. expensive in neuromarketing so reaction time testing um, eye tracking those are at the same level now as focus groups and often can be competitive to them because these technologies become commoditized and i think that um, you know we have to compete for the marketing budget just like every other agency and you know we have to make sure that what we deliver adds value and that the, we price it accordingly but it's certainly you know over the years we've realized that you know we are actually competing against cost costs and so forth for focus groups and and surveys we do deliver extra value and yet you know we we're highly competitive with them so i think if you're looking at the heavy technologies like eeg and fmri yes you will be paying extra but is it valuable isn't it more important that you understand honestly what is in people's minds and what they will and won't accept at the point of sale um, because that's going to save you millions of of marketing dollars mm. and manufacturing dollars to bring you know a a product from launched you know into the market it's phenomenally expensive so to pay a little bit more for the predictability that's going to succeed or fail isn't that worth it it's like a high return on investment i guess super Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I'm going to get back to the topic of implicit reaction time test, which is something that you have been working on in the past years uh, in a moment. But uh, before we, we go to that, how does a typical neuromarketing project goes about? Well, like any other advertising or design agency, we will re um, respond to a request for a proposal, which companies or clients put out there. And we put across our ideas of how we're going to help them address their marketing challenges what kind of research we're going to do how we're going to do it um, why this is different from traditional techniques um, and where's the value that we bring over and above um, qualitative and quantitative um, market research and then if we um, win that then we literally go about Um, you know, creating the uh, experimental paradigms that we're going to be using. Many of these we already have at our disposal and uh, collect data, the data um, largely analyzed by our automated algorithms. And we then take that information back to the client with interpretation so that they have actionable insight. It's like any other kind of, you know, agency mm -hmm. approach, if that's what you're trying to yeah, get at. Yeah, that's definitely uh, answering the question. Um, so for for maybe a, an additional piece of information is we're currently at Nanjan Technological University uh, where Gemma works and I have had the pleasure to, to to take part in some of her classes on neuromarketing and there have been some very interesting discussions in these classes and I want to, to ask you actually about a question that came up in one of these classes which is how much expertise is needed you know to be able to work in consumer neuroscience. I guess one of the, the, the elements of the discussion was, you know, the brain is this highly complex sort of like uh, organ 
and, and studying it, you know, Ricardo, I mean, you're a neuroscientist, right? So it's not that you're just like somebody that said, okay, I'm going to use this technique and that's it. So, so what is the level of expertise required? Yeah, well, it really depends because this is an interdisciplinary field. So I guess a, a neuromarketing um, research company will require individuals with expertise in psychology or perhaps in behavioral economics, certainly in some of the techniques. So, you know, in split second research, we specialize in um, reaction time testing. We also have biometrics and we do some EEG as well. So we have individuals who come in from an academic background with expertise in those fields. However, translating the insights into marketing, you know, um, actions um, requires people coming in from more of a business side of things, right? Mm. So it's a merger of um, people with backgrounds in marketing, in business development, uh, in sometimes in engineering, in psychology, in neuroscience, coming together to create something that's really quite unique and I think has got big legs. It's going to go much further than this as we see the world of AI and, and neuroscience um, coming together to, I guess, form the new, you know, con consumer or human 3.0. Mm. You know, we're, we're becoming, we already have prosthetics embedded in our bodies. We have chips in our brains to help people who can't speak to be able to uh, communicate. And this is, as well, I mean, the the future is constrained only by our imagination. That is super interesting. Yeah, and, and, and I do see like this, uh, this sort of like future, which is quite interesting. Uh, you know, companies like Neuralink from Elon Musk attempting to, mm. you know, connect, create better human computer integration. And, and of course, the, the methods of neuroscience becoming cheaper and more easily accessible, you know, and all these different things that are creating kind of like a new context. Um, I guess in, in that sense, uh, uh, and, and another question that typically comes up in many, uh, by, by many students and, and many practitioners is what, what are the ethical implications of neuromarketing? And I guess this is a topic that we can spend like a whole podcast talking about, <laughs> but briefly, I don't know, do you have any thoughts about it? Um, I've, I've held many debates on this topic um, with students at all levels, from undergraduate up to our top executive MBAs, um, public sector um, courses and so forth. And I think what I've noticed is that in every occasion, the prevailing um, vote is that neuromarketing doesn't breach any additional ethics that marketing itself couldn't be, um, you know, criticised for. Um, I guess neuromarketing. We're working with marketers. What, are, what does marketing do? It's it's designed to help sell the brand owners' products to consumers um, using any methods that they deem fit. Um, there's not a lot of regulation around that now. Being able to understand what turns people on and off by seeing inside their brain and their reward centers uh, has largely been used to help build better consumer experiences, right? Products that titillate us, advertising that entertains us, um, communications that are tailored and targeted for us. We don't 
want all this clutter of irrelevant information, do we? I mean, none of us do, right? So in a way, neuromarketing has been extremely helpful in that respect. There is a concern that perhaps there's some kind of buy button in the brain. Um, to date, I don't think that's been found. This is not a litmus test. It is only a way of improving the predictability of how we're going to respond at the point of sale. I, I really, and I really mean that. I, I really don't think that uh, you know a, there's a single area of the brain or even a combination of areas of the brain that can guarantee you with 100% accuracy or even anywhere near that that you know if we sell and launch this product and this appeals to the brain, you know that's it. It's it's everybody will not be able to resist it. I I think that's so unlikely since we are complex beings and. There are so many additional factors and you know that your conscious and subconscious work jointly mm. together. It's not a question of, you know, it's not a sort of black and white thing. It's, you know, I can set a piece of chocolate cake in front of you and I can convince you uh, why you need it. And you've worked so hard and you're so tired and you need this energy. And let's face it, you look great. You can you know, afford it. I can persuade you with just my words, but part of you will be going, yes, that's true. Oh, I want that. And the other part of you, which is your system two or your conscious brain, will be, you know, look, that's full of sugar. It's, you know, I'll feel awful afterwards. I'll feel guilty. And, I'll, you know, so somewhere in there, right, that's exactly how the brain makes decisions. It weighs up the pros and cons, literally, computationally. And there's an element of noise in there which will flip you off the fence one way or the other. But there's a random factor. And that random factor is, I guess, the gatekeeper of total manipulation. That is a, a very interesting reflection. And I guess on top of that, something that some people say, which is, I guess, a similar discussion that we're having with many uh, novel technologies like AI, you know, or you know, things like that. And it's, it's I mean, there, there might be a potential for misuse, I guess, if you have bad intentions or stuff like that. But it's just a tool, right? Like fire was a tool when we discovered it. We could burn, burn the villages down or we could use it to warm up our food, right? So in a way, you have also these, these, these uh, kind of like alternatives. All right, let's go back to the, the concept of implicit testing. Uh, this is one that is quite interesting because uh, it's like uh, a way to approach somehow these uh, more uh, subconscious processes in a way that is perhaps more accessible, I would say. So why don't you tell us what is implicit reaction? What are implicit reaction time tests? Okay, so that paradigm has been the mainstay of cognitive psychology for goodness, like 50 years, I would say. And the psychologists have used the time it takes individuals to be exposed to a stimulus, so maybe I flash up a word, and the time it takes for you to make a motor response. And by manipulating different features of that task, we can infer that there must be certain computations or subcomputations or subtasks that the brain has to do in order for you to get the whole task done. Which means, for example, um, if I show you an image and then um, I tell you that you're going to have to do uh, like press a button and, and not this button, but that one over there. And I then measure the speed with which you do this. And I change the instructions a little bit each time. Then I can say, oh, look, there must be something in that person's brain that's holding the instructions. Hmm. Right. Because I, if I leave it a long time, I know that you will forget the instructions. So there's some working memory. And we know that there's an internal articulation loop that we have, that we 
are going, oh, I must remember this stuff, I must remember that. Okay, so that tells something that. And then um, if you expect which button to press, you will be significantly faster. So what's that mean? It means that there must be a holding, a little holding strategy in there. It's called a premotor cortex, which is preparing your arm or your finger to make a particular movement. And because it's holding that information there, preparing you, anticipating when the time goes to make the press, you're significantly faster. So, I mean, this is just how we can build up an understanding of from a cognitive psychology perspective about what kinds of um, subtasks does the brain have to do? And what kind of um, computational uh, silos does it have? Now, from a neuromarketing perspective, essentially, um, I think one of the main uses of implicit reaction time has been to interrogate your semantic memory. That is your memory for all the knowledge that you have about the world. And this includes brands. So in putting you into a paradigm where we maybe are exposing you to certain brand attributes or brand traits, and then uh, very, very quickly, because system one, your subconscious, has automatic word reading. So when you're subsequently exposed to the logo of, say, McDonald's versus KFC, um, if your expectations from that prime of the word, so say, um, greasy, and what the thing that pops into your mind first would be perhaps one or either of those brands. So you will be expecting that logo to appear. If it does, because of this anticipation module in the brain, the pre-motor cortex, you'll be measurably faster to respond when you see the logo. If, on the other hand, KFC appears, you don't associate, say, greasy with KFC, then you literally have to shut down all the concepts to do with McDonald's, activate all the concepts in your brain to do with KFC, and you press. And, of course, that's measurably slower, right? Mm. So you can imagine we have a whole range of different brand attributes that we flash up just before you have to make a response to that logo or another one. And by so doing, the reaction time is a proxy for the strength of association that you hold in your mind between those sets of attributes, traits, USPs, um, and those two brands. So in a way, it's getting at your gut instinct. Those tasks run too fast for your conscious brain to respond. So this is literally, it's a stimulus response and it allows us oh, to- We're talking about milliseconds, right? Milliseconds, yeah. yeah. So responding with around 600 milliseconds after the um, logo appears. But remember, we have just primed you pre previously, so that will interfere with your ability to react. To a subsequent... Uh, exactly. Yeah. It will either speed you up or slow you down, depending on whether that attribute that we just flashed up first before logos is linked to the logo that appears or not. And now, there are many ways you can, you, you can test pack designs, you can test brand extension ideas, all of these are literally getting at the, the top of mind. It's, it's literally interrogating the concepts that you hold about brands subconsciously. That is uh, fascinating. And I guess that it has something that is uh, quite nice, I guess, which is you can relatively easily implement it, right? Uh, 
easy easy in the sense that you know you can have like a website which is correct me if i'm wrong but uh, your company basically offers this service and you do it on a browser based basis is yep. that true so um we can run these studies on laptops but also on our on people's um, on smartphones as well. yeah, yeah absolutely so right. you're, we, we use a, a trick of sort of swiping left ah. and right so we have algorithms that calculate whether you make errors in any direction uh, the speed with which you respond uh, and we calibrate um, a lot of things about your responses just for it for, for individuals. the individual i guess yeah, yeah absolutely uh -huh. and so i mean over the goodness many many years Thanks. i guess um years at least over 10 years we've been uh, developing these algorithms to include and expand upon lots of other reaction time paradigms than the one i've sort of described to you but the the kinds of questions that we've been asked to address have gone way beyond simply what's in people's minds about my brand versus my competitors or how do my um, packs line up you know i want to do the new packaging much much more interesting things like that i mean we've um for example been testing the effectiveness of messages for vaccines oh, for, wow. but yeah we've um been looking at how to optimize the uh, consumer journey so we did something recently for alton towers where we had kids with their parents um, when the kids were wearing biometric devices around their wrists and we were looking at uh, which rides give maximum excitement and sometimes uh, you get sensory overload and then the kids get very agitated mm. and then some rides are very calming um, you know so you've got a roller coaster versus a little uh, tour in a, in a boat and so you you know by so studying the kids through their journey through Alton Towers which is a theme park um, we could find the optimal route for them so that they they have a period of excitement and then downtime and then excitement and then excitement and then downtime and so mm -hmm. so we optimize like so that the family themselves have a much um, smoother there's no tantrums right <laughs> yeah uh -huh. so um so that's that that's kind of like we're doing a lot of stuff on that i think something else i wanted to share with you is um an implicit test that we've set up for the female lead. Mm -hmm. Now, the female lead is a, I, it's a lobby group. It's a think tank. Um, it's a platform for women globally to share about their success and their challenges in the workplace. So it's promoting um, women's voice uh, in, in, in the working environment. And um, to promote the brand, they, they asked us to set up an implicit test where you could read out, get a read of your gender uh, biases. And it's very interesting that this, you know, gender bias is still alive and kicking. Mm. You know, the prevailing view is that men should, you know, be in the office and be the workers and women in the kitchen and things like that. And we would never say that, right, it's, uh, explicitly. It's not PC to do so. But the implicit tests reveal that overwhelmingly across multiple cultures, this is still the case. That mm -hmm. actually, well, and you know, of course, it's been, you know, ground into us. You know, from the moment that you know you, you've got kids, that the blue 
is for the little boy and the pink is for the little girl and and, and it goes on from there and these these stereotypes are still very potent and powerful today and i think one of the things which is really important about this implicit test is it makes what's implicit explicit not only to a population but also to us as individuals and by so doing i think it gives us an opportunity to think before we act are we actually acting on impulse are we acting in the way we are because of these deeply held stereotypes you know which is it's nobody's fault it's just they exist and mm. and I, I i think that's a very um positive use of neuromarketing mm. right to to reveal to us as people what is inside our subconscious you know that makes absolute sense and i guess to to, to quote something that you said in some of our previous interactions is where, where sometimes an explicit test like a focus group or an interview can't discriminate in specific kind of like tasks or things, implicit tests actually can. So they can, what you said, you know, is like I ask you, are you, are you, do you hold any, any specific, uh, you know, prejudices against women or, you know, any other group? People say no, but then you show with the reaction time test that potentially they do, you know, they, they do have some, some sort of differences. And I guess something that people also sometimes forget is that, uh, you know, we think marketing, yes, marketing is about, it's about, it's about selling, but it's, I would say more broadly speaking about competitive advantage and co competitive advantage is something that you can find yes in the marketplace but also in causes you know in or different sorts of things you know and and there is where consumer neuroscience can bring in as well or neuromarketing bring in some insights and say like look if you want to have a competitive advantage in terms of you know making a cause more relevant for people let's try to understand it from this point of view and, and try to deliver some insights so that is that is super interesting um, I guess you have already mentioned a few of the, the, the applications, you know, and, and kind of like exciting projects that, that you have been working on. But is there any other project that comes to mind that you would like to share uh, before we move to a little bit more of, uh, of the academic projects that you're working on? Um, well, I think uh, so. a few things of, of interest there. Um, we've recently been using implicit tests to um, help the financial sector, which is interesting, they kind of lay players into, into this field, um, to develop their consumer strap lines, you know, for all of their products, um, which I think is nice to see. Um, we've been working with um, companies like FMCG to extend their brands into different areas. For example, we did um, a study for spam and they were keen to see if they could extend into spam crisps or pizzas or spam burgers, spam hot dogs. And our implicit results found that actually there was a demand for spam pizza. And mm. so they set up a partnership with um, uh, Pizza Hut in 2020, just before COVID in the Philippines. And, uh, you know, that was really nice to see the outcome of our research actually having a really, you know, obvious, uh. Uh, actionable know um outcome there right and so uh, yeah so i mean i'm overwhelmed with the number of projects we have so uh in terms of consulting projects so um but i can tell you if you're interested in some of the academic stuff we're doing so yes i would love to hear so that was my, my next question you know, because one of the, the so of course you have a, a super active uh, consulting you know kind of like uh, action uh, 
number of projects and, and so on. But you also are very active in, in academic research and, and you have some recent research on sound symbolism and some topics that we have just very briefly mentioned in some of the other podcasts. That, so this is a very nice space to connect with some of your projects. What are some exciting academic projects working on at the moment? Okay, so yeah, so one of the things we're doing is trying to understand how the building blocks of language, these are called phonetic features, like there's tiny little sounds, which we have in all languages. So they're language agnostic, but they're the, the building blocks of human speech. And it turns out that certain sounds connote certain meanings implicitly. So when you hear, for example, a brand like Hagen Dage, that's containing very rare sounds, which we don't often hear in, in language much. And because of its rareness or rarity, um, it connotes sort of kind of distance, it connotes scarcity, it connotes luxury. Hmm. It's why these guys can um, charge a premium for their ice cream simply by the brand name alone. So what we've been doing is finding out how different parts of speech connote different features and traits which brand managers can then use to build their brand names in a way that intuitively connotes something about the product or service itself. And that's important because, you know, as consumers, we're constantly bombarded with, with so much information, so many brands trying to compete for our attention that uh, you know, something which can implicitly communicate to your subconscious what its USPs are uh, is highly useful for us as well, right? So we don't have to kind of think too hard. We just kind of have a sense of it. So that's uh, something that we're doing. Which I guess that's also quite uh, relevant for startups, right? Because in many cases, they are facing like this challenge of, you know, what may, how should I name my company? And, and sometimes they choose like these, you know, words that maybe don't have a meaning themselves but they convey meaning anyway, right? They do, yes, exactly. they do, yes. And I, I, I know some of your research obviously is overlapping very much with this. Uh -huh. um, so another area which I'm kind of interested in is how technology is changing the brain. And I did um, a fMRI experiment some years ago with my colleagues at King's College uh, in London. And what we found was that some of these big technology brands like Apple, uh, well, they seem to have harnessed the brain areas that evolved to perceive or experience religious um, or spiritual feelings. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Um, you know, and the, we, we compared Apple advocates who literally think about Apple 24 seven, uh, particularly in the early days when this was so new and you know, it was very disruptive with the you know their, their brain activity when they saw apple products and the brain activity when people who are spiritual were experiencing symbols and things which are relevant to them and the overlap in terms of the brain areas in the temporal lobe were uncanny wow. but i guess that explains why some of these big technology firms really evoke such fervor right mm -hmm. i mean it's almost like a like a religious like experience, a like a cult, like, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. So, so I'm interested in that, and I'm interested in how how technology is beginning to change us as human beings. Our interactions with our uh, smartphones, 
is beginning to have some real impact, I believe, on how the, our brains are wired. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You know, now that we are seeing, we're in this context of, let's say, a variety of digital transformations, AI, you know, Internet of Things, technology, mixed reality, and blockchain technology, like all these different things. You know, we, perhaps some that are more evident, like our smartphones, which are part of, like, a key part of our of many of our lives, right? So, how? How is, I mean, what, what is your take on how are these technologies influencing us? How are these technologies changing our brain? Well, I think there are three areas that we need to focus on. One is attention. The other is our memory systems. And the third is how we regulate our emotions. In the first instance, I think we all know that our attention is becoming very focused and distributed. And when I mean distributed, if you just watch a teenager in front of the TV, they're kind of watching the TV, they've got their smartphone on one side, they've got their laptop on the other. Their attention is distributed across different platforms. I can just give you an example of the listeners of this podcast that some previous listeners have been telling you that they are listening to the podcast while they have their computer on, working while the TV is on as well, and checking every now and then their smartphone. So Yeah, so of course, and we're being disrupted the whole time. So there's some very nice experiments showing that um, the ability or your ability to perform a um, cognitive task or an IQ test kind of thing um, deteriorates the closer the smartphone is to you. So if it's outside the door, you do the best. If you put it by your side in your handbag or your uh, suitcase, you do slightly better. Oh, so, sorry, you do slightly worse. And then uh, if you put it on your desk next to you, this is the worst even though it's switched off. Hmm. So, of course, I think... Which some... links very nicely with completion, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, I, I, marketers have told me that we seem to be switching from deep divers in terms of attention, focused, you know, um, uh, concentrating, just to surface surfers. So hmm. surfing on the... You know, we're, our attention is no longer as concentrated as it used to be. We're We're victim to disruption we expect it we welcome it mm. there's nothing more that we like than distraction right and it's rewarding so i think our attentional systems are becoming deconstructed in a way that uh, raises questions about how do you train someone to concentrate and focus on a task and get that done as opposed to shifting their interest left and right. The second thing is memory. So we all know that uh, we know where to find stuff, so no need to remember what we call it information, right? Because you've got your phone with you here all the time. So it's kind of acting like a third hemisphere, if you like, which is perhaps what Elon Musk is thinking. Since this is attached to you all the time on your hand, and we're using it like a third hemisphere. Let's face it, it's got all our diary information. It's got all our social information. It's got the whole internet on here. And we just have to just make this a little smaller and stick it in your head. Hmm. What's the difference, really? Okay, I mean, I know biologically and ethically and psychologically, it seems like there's a difference, but is there really? Hmm. So it turns out that we have digital amnesia. No. So the younger generations are less able to recall information and encode information than older generations who haven't had 
you know, having grown up with smartphones and other devices to help them with all information. So you know, that's the next sort of thing. So we've outsourced memory. And finally, uh, in terms of regulation of emotion, never before in human history have we had so much release of dopamine all throughout the day. Every time you hear one of those cues, things, you know, sounds from social media, somebody's liked your photo, somebody's made a comment, somebody's trying to get hold of you. This is rewarding. Mm. And um, and rewarding at a fundamental level, right? Like it's like dealing with some very fundamental systems in the brain, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. It's mm. an addiction. Yeah. And and smartphone addiction, I believe, is now in the DSM, wherever we are on the mm. psychiatric uh, you know, level of that book. It it's a it's a thing. And you know that because you can't go anywhere without your phone. People sleep next to the phone. Mm. Um, you get anxiety if, the, if you've lost the phone or if you can't find the phone. I mean, this is, this is part, part and parcel of you. And some very nice experiments have shown that your ability to choose a greater reward, which is going to be given to you, but you have to wait longer for it, it's called delayed discounting, mm. um, weakens as soon as you have the use of a smartphone for only three months. So this is a difficult experiment to mm. do because the authors had to find people who'd never had a smartphone. And so it was done a few years ago and they could find that, you know, just using a smartphone makes you throw away the longer term goal and become short termism, short termist. You want, I want the smaller reward, but I want it now. Mm. Now, of course, you know that that's where our kids are, right? We have to train them not to take the immediate yeah. reward. We develop brain systems that stop us from acting on impulse and being able to you know, save for the future, for example. We know that the reward is going to be so much bigger if we wait for it. But this has to be trained. And this, you know, evolves over time as we grow up. These devices seem to be pushing us back in time. Um, and making us much more prone to uh, needing constant gratification. Which is quite quite, quite a challenge. And like, but so while, while you were speaking about these kind of like three uh, elements, I guess, or these three, let's say, dimensions of our psychology that, that have been affected or are affect, being affected by technology, something came, came to mind, which is, you know, the, the instant gratification, I can potentially see it as, as, as problematic, but... When it comes to memory, I start thinking to what extent maybe our environmental demands are so different that maybe it's actually more suitable for the task, you know, actually freeing lots of our memory because it's actually there. I, and, you know, like this is, I'm kind of like, I don't know if I'm asking the, the, the question correctly, but, but what I mean is what is good and what is bad here? If we look at this in the long term, thinking that maybe some of the things that are happening now that we see as bad could be because we're judging it from a previous context, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, I totally agree. I think this is having an implication in education systems because in the old days, you'd have to sit there silent and just listen to the teacher. And the idea was you just absorb it all and then spit it out when the exam comes. Mm. Now, many people would then just forget about the information they've learned because they haven't interacted on it. Um, you know, it, we, we question, why do I need to know this? And it, you know, I like the fact that now that kids have access to the internet, 
oh my God, they have like so much information that it's, it's impossible for them to hold it all. What's much more important then is to shift our perspective to getting people to learn how to think and how to interact or how to um, use that information in order to solve problems, thinking out of the box. And you've seen this, you know, we've all seen this in the last 20 years or so with disruptive technologies. This whole idea of disruption comes from interdisciplinary areas, from, you know, looking at things that exist, but from a different perspective. And the reason we can spend the time in the classroom teaching this is because it's not really necessary to have to spend the time, you know, encoding all the information for a, a single task at the end of the, of, of the year, which is just to regurgitate it. So I think in a way, I, I, I like the fact that we've got a third hemisphere and, you know, we've become masters of navigation, of finding information very quickly. And, uh, you know, why overload our memory systems? We're never going to be able to compete with computers and robots in that respect. They're going to know more than we can possibly hold in our, in our memory systems, right? But what they might not be able to do as well as we can is think creatively. And critically, what you said, yeah, you know that that makes uh, absolute sense. Uh, this is a good moment, Gemma, to ask you a, a different kind of question, which is, you know, some of my our listeners would potentially like to read more about your research, about your consulting, and your company. So, what is a good way for for them to 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 read about your work and stuff that you're doing? Uh, I guess uh, your website, your LinkedIn. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I have my own website, it's Gemma at GemmaCalvert.com, and uh, I post um, articles and things that um, I've written, they're largely industry articles. Um, and uh, then Split Second Research is my company, um, and we put posts up there about our um, consulting projects. Um, there's lots of blogs, there's lots of ideas there. Um, Job post there if you want to go into <laughs> this field. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are good ways to, yeah. to connect with you. Perfect. I I will post uh, Gemma's website, uh, her company's website, uh, in the description of this episode. So please go and check, click there, and and uh, get in touch if you have any further questions or you would like to connect. Absolutely. Uh, I have two final questions for you, Gemma. The first one is kind of like wrapping up, you know, this this uh, discussion about our uh, your your industry uh, uh, consulting projects and also your academic research. Uh, I guess that the question is, what are some general issues in research and practice in neuromarketing that you see, and you know, where are we heading to? So, what does the future look like? I think the exciting stuff is coming out of neuroscience because the more we learn about the brain, the better we are able to understand ourselves and including how we consume and what influences us, you know, how we actually make decisions. These are insights which can be applied to help marketing strategy, to help you better understand consumers. Neuromarketing, in terms of the, the research, is about the technologies which allow us to, um, you know, find out what people like, um, what they're going to respond to. But I think in this a huge repository 
of information from the neuroscience, growing neuroscience, etc., um, which can be applied immediately. We know how the visual system works. We know what attracts the visual system maximally. We know um, what the brain finds easy to encode into long-term memory. So you can use this information to craft messages and communications that are easier for consumers to understand and, and to act upon and re recall. Um, so I, I think that's a very exciting area. It's not just about which technique does, you know, is, is the best to do the research with, but, but actually being able to um, apply the knowledge and to understand the customer journey. With I groups, think it's fantastic know. what you're saying. It's kind of like about asking the right questions from the right knowledge base, you know, because many people are concerned about the, the method itself, but then the method without a proper question becomes obsolete, I guess. Yeah, pretty much, right? Yeah. So it's not that easy to do neuromarketing exactly. research. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, if I was going to leave you with one thought, it would be if you really want to understand how to optimize the way your brand connects with consumers, you need to put yourself in their shoes. You need to understand their journey with your product or service, the different touch points. And then if you understand that, you can use neuromarketing approaches to optimize at every touch point to make a kind of multi-sensory immersive experience, um, you know, which will titillate and excite consumers and build relationships with them. So that was basically uh, pointing to one of the last questions that I wanted to ask you, it was what kind of recommendations would you give to our listeners? So that is actually perfect. Um, Gemma, this has been very exciting and I'm very happy to, to have had this conversation with you. Uh, I hope that all of our listeners were, will enjoy this conversation as well. So yeah, thank you very much for being here and uh, let's hope that uh, we can have sometime in the future another of these ones. Of course, it's been my pleasure and thank you very much for inviting me.